The beauty of Orthodox is the relationships. Your reward is that person trusting you and you taking that seriously. But also, as I've said a number of times, I view Orthodox as not a two-year transaction, but a lifetime transformation. I'm Dr. Chris Seta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. On today's show, my guest is Dr. David Sarver. Well, welcome to the podcast, David. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well. Auburn won their football game today. So. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> They're 3-2. and two. Three and two. We, we eat by. We've got a couple of wins that we probably didn't deserve, but I'll take them. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're in a good mood here. <laughs> and I feel weird calling you David because I usually call you Doc. Right. That's a sign of age. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so uh, why don't you tell everyone where we're at today? We're atop the Grand Bohemian Hotel in Birmingham, which happens to be you know a five-star hotel. And it's just really a beautiful hotel artwork, you know, the kind of thing that you would expect to see somewhere besides Birmingham, Alabama. Well, I don't know about that. Yeah. Well, people have a certain vision of Birmingham. They do in some ways. But I'll tell you, we have a beautiful setting today. We're the only ones on a rooftop bar. And I think it's because it (laughs) finally stopped pouring. But if I had to describe the scene, I would say we are surrounded by these beautifully lush mountains. And they're starting to change colors a little bit. And some really nice homes in the area. Yeah, they'll change colors for a couple of weeks. And that's about it. Because our our seasons change pretty quickly here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there have been a lot of people that have been to Birmingham to take my course, you know. It's kind of a consistent theme that people are like, gosh, I didn't know the place was this nice. And so I make them all sign a sheet of paper saying they won't tell anybody else. (laughs) Uh, I had Udi Schneider, who is a prominent Orthodontist in Europe. Okay. Yeah. So I was lecturing in London at a meeting she was at, and she's a great lady, and her husband's a North Carolina that she practices with. So we were at a cocktail party, and she just stops and goes, David, can I ask you a personal question? And I said, well, it depends on how personal it is, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, no, it's not that personal. Uh, Birmingham. And I said, Birmingham. She goes, why Birmingham? I said, what do you mean? She goes, why aren't you in Manhattan? Why aren't you in Beverly Hills? Yeah. And I said, you mean Gomer goes to New York? Oh, come on. When the NBC called and, and asked me if I would be on the Today Show. And I don't know if you even know about this. Yeah, I think I heard the story. So I said no. And they were like, nobody says no. Doctors killed to be on Today Show, like with Katie Couric. And I said, nah. They said, why not? And I said, because... <laughs> As soon as I open my mouth and start talking, nobody will listen to what I'm saying. They'll be listening to how I say it. Oh, come on. Yeah. And so the lady went, yeah, you kind of got a point there. So Dr. Christine Dumas, who is a cosmetic dentist, who's a medical correspondent for NBC. Mm-hmm. So I spent about six months training her on the right things to say and all that. And she did a really, really good job with it, too. Well, it's fantastic. Yeah. So Gomer never did get on the Today Show. Well, you know, this was probably 15 years ago, too. Yeah. And, you know, Orthodox was still, you know, to be associated with a commercial company was kind of evil. and Faux pas, right? 
Yeah, it just wasn't accepted very well. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it was probably just a little too out there. Yeah. And frankly, I, like I said, I really meant what I said. Mm-hmm. That I've heard myself on recordings plenty of times. And like a lot of people, I look at my wife and go, is that me? I can't believe how what a southern accent I have. And I don't think I have that much of a southern accent. I think it's a great accent. Do you think people associate the southern accent with maybe being less bright? Or, oh, absolutely. You think so? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell you a story. When I was at Chapel Hill, yeah. now, Bill Prophet, of course, was born and raised in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And he was renowned for his southern accent. He had one, too, yeah. I had a um, visiting chairman. And I was doing some really interesting research. And so Prof asked me if I'd show him what I was doing. And I was showing him, went to the lab, and I was showing him what I was doing. And he goes, you know, I'm just really impressed with UNC. I just didn't know that the Southern University would have this quality of education. Mm-hmm. Literally said that to me. Wow. Yeah. And I was, mm, yeah, we wear shoes, too, and <laughs> things like that. And you know, was, I, I, as you know, I went to Wake Forest in North Carolina, so yeah. I think I've always sort of looked past it. And, you know, I can certainly see the genius of a lot of Southerners. But Well, where are you originally from? Well, New Jersey. You know that, Okay. Right? Yeah. Right. So we have a beverage today. What are we drinking? I'm having a lager. Yeah, he's having a Stella, and I'm having an old-fashioned, which is delicious. You know, actually, it's uh, interesting that you named your drink because our first meeting, you were telling me about you had been studying to become a mixologist, which is... Well, it was a, it was a hobby at the time. A hobby. Okay. Yeah. And then I realized it wasn't like really a healthy hobby. All right. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't even ask you. I said, okay, you're on tomorrow for 15 minutes. It, but I picked Friday afternoon, by the way, at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, let, let me back up here. So this was 2014, <laughs> my first time at Dr. Sarver's course. First time, I think, meeting you aside from seeing you on the big stage at the AAO. Yeah. And uh, I probably was just shaking talking to you <laughs> and you said hi you yeah you're gonna give a talk on mixology and i said what me <laughs> well you did a good job well so. thank you yeah and so i put together a very quick powerpoint presentation and i think i talked about like how to make an old-fashioned and a mai tai and a negroni and uh half the orthodontists were very into it and the other half were just looking at me like what and just rolling their eyes the whole time i think i still have the images i took with my phone oh do you i don't even have those yeah because you mentioned some of your favorites when you said that i'd take a picture of the recipe so that was my first <laughs> proper uh orthodontic speaking engagement <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you did very well. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. We're going to go back up in time here. Are you originally from Alabama? Uh, yeah, I grew up in Auburn, Alabama, which is, uh, at the time, the population of the town was 12,000. And it was totally... Not 12, 12,000. 12,000. 12, okay. okay. <laughs> and the university had 12,000 students. And so it was totally a university town. I mean, that was all, all there was. So, really, the interesting part of it is that everybody had pretty much the same income, mm-hmm. professor, you know, you, and that sort of thing. So, the, you know, I have some really close friends who always go, why are you going to Japan? Why are you going, why do you write books? Why do you do all that stuff? And, yeah. and I answer uh, seriously that I'm pretty sure that the town I grew up in, you were valued on your research and your teaching, not on how much money you had, mm-hmm. because there wasn't that much difference. And so it's sort of woven into my fabric. That's sort of the pursuit that rewards me as much as money does. Well, I think that's a wonderful thing. Well, it's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know Kyle Fagel had asked me, you know, if I'd had any regrets because I could have just focused totally on practice and right. made more money. Right. I've traveled the globe three times and been paid to do it. And yeah. so that's not all bad either. 
but you know having looked at my upbringing uh, i had a pretty fierce competition in high school oh is that right 10 percent of our graduating classes were national merit semifinalists oh wow hmm. and there was a meeting in birmingham every year where all the national merit semifinalists would meet and so in my class there were nine of us and we came up to this meeting and i was looking at the roster from all the schools in alabama we were at the top and like by a lot and i was kind of stunned by that and i went home and i said something to my parents and they said well think about it all your classmates either have one or both parents have phds and something hmm. and so it was it was fierce and so you know you had to had to work hard to get good grades yeah and i think that just sort of prepared me for what was ahead yeah so, so, and what did your father do well actually my father wasn't a professor he was he actually had about three or four jobs so my father actually started the first alumni association uh, full-time in, in hmm. uh, the United States. It was not unusual for us to feel phone calls from the governor at our house. And my father was put in charge of the desegregation of Auburn in 1963. Hmm. My mother would answer the phone and hand it to my father. I knew he was on the line, and all my father would ever say would be, no, no, we're not doing that, no, because he wanted to make a stand in the door at our university too and my father just said no we're not doing that hmm. and you know he just never even changed his tone of voice or didn't argue and just like no and so oh. no works a lot of times when people are trying to get you to do something that you in your heart know yeah that you don't want to do well a lot of people can't take that step right they just sort of go with the peer pressure and yeah mm-hmm. but no works yeah <laughs> well it does yeah yeah the power of no as they say right yeah yeah hmm. how'd you end up at unc chapel hill well, how I ended up at UNC is an interesting story. You know, back in those days, uh, you didn't have the match. Right. And so department chairmen all kind of talked to each other. And so I had interviewed at UNC, and then the next day I flew to Pennsylvania to interview at Penn, and I was interviewing with uh, Jim Ackerman, who was Prof's best buddy. I didn't know that, but he was the chairman. And so, you know, I came in, sat down, and we chit-chatted for about 45 minutes about stuff and so he you know said well okay that's been real nice to meet you and i said well you didn't ask me about my grades or anything and he said is there something wrong with your grades <laughs> i said no it's just he said oh I, oh i know you, you wonder if you are going to be accepted here and i said well it'd be nice to know and he said yeah you're accepted but you're not coming here and i said i'm not and he goes no you're going to unc i said i am and he goes, yeah, Prof called me last night and said, you're coming to UNC. Wow. So how did Prof know about you? I'm not sure. Because, see, he wasn't there when I interviewed. Yeah. I guess word, word got leaked to him. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's the story as I reconstructed in my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a long time well, ago. Well, that counts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it matters to me. So what was it like at the time studying under Prof? Because... You know, he probably was in his 30s at that point, right? He was a young professor. He was 40 years old. Oh, 40. Okay. Yeah, and he wasn't he wasn't Dr. Prophet then, like we know mm-hmm. now. Yeah. You could tell he was obviously going somewhere. You could feel the intellect mm-hmm. uh, just talking to him. I, I always tell people that, that, you know, he just he worked us to death. Hmm. We'd start early in the morning and get home late at night, you know. And it wasn't that he was there pounding on you. It's just that uh, you were expected to do a lot of research and excellent work yeah i took on a lot more myself because my wife valerie worked for ibm for right. 23 years and 
So the first school break, didn't have anywhere to go because, A, I didn't have any money, and, B, my wife couldn't go. And then I was, back then, they'd let you do dentistry on the side, and so I was seeing patients on Thursday nights and Saturdays Mm -hmm. to make a few coins. And so I had time off, and so I came in and said, you know, I explained all that and said, play me, coach, what you got? So he turned around and picked up a stack of papers and handed them to me, and it was an NIH reading section that was oh, wow. about a <laughs> foot and a half thick. Yeah, He said, read all these and summarize them for me. And I said, <laughs> okay. And so I went to the library for about two days and came back and handed it all over with the summaries and everything. And it was then that I think he went, God, this guy will do what I tell him. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I thoroughly enjoyed getting to read the stuff. And Sure. You know, it was not really work or onerous to me. It was, you know, an opportunity to see if it always used that term. And so then on all the other breaks, I would do his surgical workups and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of other stuff. So he, he it was a lot of stuff just because I would do it. Well, well, getting back to what you said earlier, I had the pleasure of meeting him once, and this was probably like the early 2000s at UNC, and he wasn't like a very strict guy, but like you've mentioned in multiple <laughs> interviews, he always answered a question with a question. Yes. Right? So yes. he probably had very high expectations, but he wasn't rude or mean or oh, no, no, never, demeaning. Never. Or, yeah. No. It was sort of like, you know, he commanded respect even at age 40. Mm-hmm. And you knew that this just wasn't your average department chairman mm-hmm. or person, for that matter. And so you uh, pretty much behaved. And Well, I guess how we all behaved, but we <laughs> we did the right stuff right, and stayed out of trouble. Stay out of, yeah. He really did have a, a great social side, that, but he wouldn't reveal it very often. You know, I mean, it's sort of like at the AAO, he would go to a cocktail party and couldn't wait to get back to his room. He just wasn't the kind of guy to mix and... And mingle and stuff. Yeah, he did what he had to do, but it went, well, I don't think it's something he really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff we wrote together, we wrote down at my beach house. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember the first time we, we were going to write on the surgical text, our standard day was to get up at 6 and walk for about an hour. And then we'd come back in and have breakfast, and then we'd start writing at 8. Mm-hmm. And at 8 o'clock, you'd say... You can't have a beer until 9 o'clock tonight. <laughs> and I was like, Prof, we're at the beach. Yeah, come on. Yeah. He's like, no. 5 o'clock somewhere, right? 9 o'clock. Wow. And so we would write from 8 till 9 that night and wow. then break for dinner and, you know, have a beer. That seems so crazy to me because I just, I can't think of orthodontists today getting together at a beach house and just writing. But it's so cool. It was one of those weird things. It was fun. Most of my stuff, you know, I'd project PowerPoint up and I would lecture and he would sit over there and and it would all go in his ear and come out his fingers as totally beautiful prophet prose and then he would uh, be emailing the residents at unc go to the library look references up this and that and then we'd burn a disc of the images he needed yeah and he would take those back to chapel hill with him and it was really for me very easy yeah. Now, when he was editing my book, I think I almost worked him to death because uh, I tend to be a little more uh, less succinct than he was. So we'll get into that in a second, but let's back up. So graduating from UNC, at that point, you knew you were going to come back to Alabama, but I believe you were sort of setting up the surgical program at UAB. Is that right? 
Well, strictly speaking, they had an excellent surgical program. Okay. Uh, and they had an orthodontic program that was good, and had just gotten a new chairman. And I was hired by my dean, uh, basically with the idea of formalizing an orthognathic program. So it wasn't like I okay. started a surgery program. Basically, what I did was I formalized a relationship between orthodontics and oral surgery. Okay. And I did that for about 15 years. So at what point, David, did you set up your private practice here in Vestavia Hills? 1979, same time I, I got here. Mm-hmm. I had really intended to be a full-time faculty member. I meant to be a full-time academic and, you know, maybe a dean or something like that, um, you know, because my other mentor uh, was my dean, who then went on, uh, ultimately became the president of the university. By the time I got hired and by the time I got here, job wasn't there. This was late 70s. When was, like, the big gas crisis? Probably right around then, right? So it was a economic depression. Oh, yeah. Well, my, my practice loan was at 18%. 18%? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And my house loan was at 17%. Set, oh, my god! But it That's set crazy. the tone for really, haven't really ever told this story other than to people conversationally. Well, but it's a good story. I mean, my wife and I obviously decided we wanted to shed debt as quickly as possible. Yeah. And so when we came in from Carolina, my wife had a, a nice salary with IBM and so we decided the right thing to do for us was to live on her salary and if and when I made money pay off loan Mm -hmm. and within three years I was debt free and so but we were used to being poor yeah relatively speaking well yeah yeah so we were used to it and we just decided we're going to have a family someday we didn't have any children then but we knew that we're going to or as you say in Alabama gonna and (laughs) We decided that what we would do would be to play the long game and invest everything I made in long-term investments, you know, with a good mix of bonds and stocks and so forth. And well, that was it, smart. Yeah, and let did, it grow. Did you think of that, or that was just a financial advisor? That um, both of us decided that. Uh-huh. It sort of just seemed to be the thing to do. It ended up that at this moment, my children still have large funds. Mm-hmm. You know, my son, of course, is an interventional radiologist. All their education has been paid for, uh, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they still had a lot left over because 18 or 20 years of growth Mm -hmm. went through one crisis uh, in the late 80s or mid 80s and then came out of it in the Reagan years where everything really began to prosper. Right. And, you know, lower, much lower taxation. And so we were just banging it away because we could. If I was going to advise residents that might be listening to this and don't spend it if you ain't got it, Yeah, for one thing, and then keep your lifestyle to what you're comfortable with. I did not ever want to have to make an orthodontic decision feeling the pressure of needing the money. Right. That's what it boils down to. This is a powerful statement right here. Well, I had a orthodontist in town who was a family friend who, much to my shock, did everything he could to get my lease undone by because he knew the guy that owned the buildings mm-hmm. because I rented space to start with. And I was kind of shocked and hurt by that. But anyway, as I got to observe him over the next two to three years, I noticed that he knew a lot more about the stock market than he did about orthodox. Hmm. And I decided right then that I don't want to be that guy. Right. I want to know my profession specialty very well. And, you know, the money will come anyway. Well, I think this is a really important lesson for new residents and not that they have 18% loans at this point, but a lot of them are coming out with pretty high loans. Well, I didn't 
owe that much in terms of today's dollars. Right. Actually, I, I didn't owe anything coming out of school because I always held jobs when I was in school mm-hmm. and made enough to skate. When my wife and I got married, she had you know worked for IBM. She was a systems engineer. So we were prudent with our money and just kind of established a pattern of our relationship that this is a very important lesson to live within your means and my father does listen to this podcast and he has told me that about five times and finally you know i didn't pay attention in my 20s and early 30s but i finally get it now dad live within your means right? yeah i have a good friend who was ahead of me in school at unc and he loved to take courses mm-hmm. all the time so ran into him one time and i said hey bunky uh taking any good courses lately and he goes, oh, yeah, I took one last weekend. It was really good. And I said, what was the topic? And he goes, oh, it's about financial management. I said, yeah. He said, good tips? What would you learn? He said, oh, um, don't spend more than you make. <laughs> That's basically what it is. Right. Yeah. And I said, oh, well, how much did you pay for that? <laughs> you know, I could have told you that for $500. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The Sarver School of Financial Management. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so David, the number one thing I believe you're known for throughout the years is this concept of smile arc, the upper incisors following the contour of the lower lip on smile. And forever, I think orthodontists were looking at angle classification, cephalometric readings, the lower incisor to the mandible. And how did you pick up on this? And Set the record straight. I know you have to some extent, but let's talk about smile art. Well, it's in my book, you know, as a matter of fact, where I describe my aha moment from Jim Ackerman that I was lecturing at a meeting and he was in the audience and he and I were taking a walk later. It was a surgery case where we did a clockwise occlusal plane rotation, mm-hmm. better incisor display, and so forth. So he said, you know what made that case really look good? And I said, what's that? And he said, improved an incisor display. And he goes, that and a better smile art. And I said, smile art. Uh, like I said, Garland Hershey, one of our faculty members, and people probably know that name, Yeah, had assigned us that paper in 1973 that uh, a guy named Chuck Halsey had done his research and was the first one to really study that as orthodontists we were flattening fully a third of the cases we treated. Hmm. But it didn't catch anybody's attention. Okay. So and, that was in the prosthodontic literature, just to clarify. Well, to precede Halsey, that was in the prosthodontic okay. li- literature was Fresh and Fisher in the 50s, early okay. 50s. It was a denture concept. Mm-hmm. And so it just really, I kind of summarize it, that a lot of people got to it before I did. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time where people were ready to hear it. And then, you know, the Chinese proverb about when the pupil is ready, the teacher appears? Yes. Okay. And so I think the specialty had gotten to a point where aesthetics was important. The numbers on the head film were, and still somewhat rule the day, but, oh, gee, I I really need to look at some things on the patient. Mm -hmm. And really all of that had sort of sprung out of this nebulous idea between myself and Prophet and Ackerman about what eventually became the soft tissue paradigm. Mm Mm-hmm. When people ask me, why did you write a book? The answer is two reasons. One, Prof told me to. But number two, he said that this is something that you have developed. I didn't teach it to you. And so he felt it was important for me to write it from the 40-year experience and development standpoint. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it is, is 
a compilation. And as you know, I've got 30-year records in there. I've had this interest since I started in orthodontics and how the face changes over time because I was doing a lot of orthognathic cases, and a lot of them were because of their prior orthodontic treatment had really not been so great for them aesthetically. Yeah. Can I just interrupt for a second? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned 30-year records, and I think the trend in orthodontics is to shorten the retainer checks because when I was trained, the standard, I think, was two years, I was told, and that became one year and then six months. And now a lot of people are, are advocating just, hey, give the patient retainers, and if they have a problem, give you a call. But why do you think it's important to follow patients for such a long period of time? What do you learn about well, your treatment. Let me say in my first probably five to ten years of practice, I've followed every patient as long as they would come. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of patients that had yearly records, and they would come back. A lot hmm. of them would, not everybody. But the the ones that were really stellar outcomes, you know, knew that I felt it was important that I see them again. That's what I tell the oral surgeons. They meet the patient on the first visit, and they see them the night before surgery. And they seem a little bit after, and then the relationship's over. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of orthodontics is the relationships. Your reward is that person trusting you mm-hmm. and you taking that seriously. But also, as I've said a number of times, I view orthodontics as not a two-year transaction, but a lifetime transformation. It's an opportunity that very few professionals have. And so we're really unique in that regard. My staff understood that that patient is important to me. Sure. And the patient knew that they were important. The record keeping, to me, is how I learned. So just going back and looking at the records and over time. Yeah. I think if you have to see what you did and how to hold up, did I do the right thing? Because at 10 years, you really don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Now, the interesting part of this is that, okay, I've been in practice for 40 years. And a lot of my kids I'm treating, I treated their parents. Mm-hmm. So I get to see how it turned out. And yeah. interestingly, there are a number of them that I'll be looking at them, and they'll go, what? And I go, you know, if I was to treat you today, I would do it a little bit differently. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And they go, yeah, like what? And I would tell them. And a lot of them will go, okay, well, let's, yeah, I get it. Let's do that. And they understand that, that things change. Of course. Professions and specialties and all that change with time. And if you're not changing, you're not doing your job. But you've done lecturing before, and and so there's really something pretty educational about standing up in front of a big old crowd and seeing your slides. On the big screen. The buckle shot's taller than you are. It's very humbling. Yes, but I don't even get humbled by it anymore because I accept it as reality. It's what it is. Mm -hmm. When we come back in just a moment, we discuss Dr. Sarver's new book, his thoughts on his legacy, and his predictions for the future of the orthodontic profession. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from Lightforce Orthodontics. Dr. Alfred Griffin and his team at Lightforce Ortho have developed the world's only fully custom bracket system. Each bracket is fully customized based on your treatment plan and your patient's unique tooth morphology. Complete customization enables your cases to not only finish faster, but with even better results. Head over to lightforceortho.com to request your demo today. 
Mention Illuminate Podcast and you'll even receive some super cool Lightforce swag. Support also comes from KL Owen Custom Braces. The KL Owen system executes 100% custom results with patented modular brackets, even for the molars. KL Owen Braces offers reduced patient visits and doctor time, leading to greater profitability. Combine that with a lower cost and faster turnaround time than any other custom system. For more details, check out kloembraces.com slash discover. Mention Illuminate Podcast to receive $100 savings on a 10K starter pack. Welcome back to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Seta. Dental Facial Aesthetics, the new book, is from macro to micro. Not micro to macro. And, you know, just reading the book, you use this wonderful analogy that you're in Europe and I believe you're looking at the architecture of Gaudi. And yeah. he designed his buildings from the outside in. Yes. And when I learned an orthodontic residency, we learned from inside out. Right. It was angle occlusion it was the main thing, right? And sure, you would pay attention to, uh, you know, the profile and things like that. But, yeah. it, you know, the first thing you looked at was the molar and the canine. And the right. midlines, right? Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about when did you have this realization? Oh, I would say mid-80s. I was looking, doing a lot of surgical cases, and it occurred to me that we have two standards that, okay, I would have a standard for surgical cases, and then I'd go to my office. And so when I would look at adolescents, I would look at them just as I would a surgery case. Mm-hmm. It's just the tools are different, growth modification instead of surgery or whatever. And so, you know, I just began to think differently and influenced by a number of, you know, good mentors that I've mentioned several times. The macro, mini micro, I can't even remember when I came up with that. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I don't even remember. (laughs) But it just seemed logical to me that if we start inside, we our emphasis is there not on the overall appearance of what a patient would look like. Mm -hmm. I didn't really even come up with this concept until the AAO in Los Angeles, the concept of smile projection, Mm -hmm. that, okay, when I was in school, the most important thing was the position of the lower incisor. All right, so if you look at the history of orthodox, of which I've probably lived through the whole thing, um, (laughs) so it started out being the molar position, and then in the 60s and on, it became the position of the lower incisor. And then now, to me, it's the position of the upper incisor. Right. And it's not only the position of the upper incisor vertically, like smile arc and all that, horizontally, too. And we're, we got control over all three dimensions you right. know, of what we want. And so smile projection, as I began to look at, and again, a lot of people say, Doug does a whole bunch of surgery, and the answer is yes, I do. But I learned a lot from it, too. Mm-hmm. that I was looking at a patient that had already had a jaw operation and just wasn't pleased with the appearance outcome. She had an excellent bite, but it was an appearance issue to her. And so we redid surgery, but it was different. And she really came out, to me, stunning. Mm. And then right after that, I had a, a young lady I treated, North and Hunt case. You know, we talked about protecting smile arc. I protected the AP position of her upper incisors, too. And what I did was she had a lot of crowding in the lower arch, and what I did was I had the periodontal procedure done and the perio graft and sure. osteogenic, you know, 
and advanced her lower incisors to fit the position of the upper incisors. Mm -hmm. Now, is that good orthodontics? Uh, I don't know. Time will tell. But it really made a huge aesthetic difference. And that's where I started to go, you know, I'm changing even right now on how I look at patients. That uh, That's now uh, kind of one of the primary things that I want to have. And as I tell parents, I want your child, when he or she walks into a room and smiles, you, you don't see them straight on. You see them obliquely. That's true. And so when they smile, I want it to fill up the room. Mm. And so I think you use the term pop, right? Snap. Snap. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pop, I guess, is Courtney Schiefelbein then. Uh, smile pop. Smile snap projection. Yeah, she's smile pop. I'm smile snap. Okay. Did <laughs> <laughs> you trademark that? Yeah. I yeah. better. I'm probably uh, need to get, get it knocked down. <laughs> In the book, which I just love, is that it doesn't read like a traditional orthodontic textbook. Like most textbooks are sort of written in the third person, but you use the word I. Yeah. Right? I think you mentioned to me that it was Prophet that really told you to do that, right? Two, to write two, it in the first person instead of the third person. Two aspects to that. And it was Prophet when, you know, Prophet was my editor. And he said, look, I don't want you to cut and paste anything. Mm-hmm. I want you to go back. And I want you to redictate, just like you're lecturing. Okay, mm-hmm. so I want it to flow just like. And he would always say, "I want it to be in your voice." And it, and it really is. That was one part of it was to make it in my voice. And his other requirement, the first chapter he started editing, he struck out where I would say we because as orthodontists we think about our staff and the people we collaborate with and. Mm-hmm. And we always think of we, but he said, you know, you need to say, I made this decision. Mm-hmm. Was another orthodontist involved in the case? No. Then you made the decision. So use the term I. It makes sense. And it just, it reads so differently, like I said, than a traditional orthodontic textbook. And I sat down sort of with the intention of maybe reading it for 15, 20 minutes at a time. And I'll be honest, I didn't put it down for about three hours. <laughs> I, I read the first two chapters straight through. It's just really sort of captivating and interesting. And, and you showed that case of the young woman who had the motor vehicle accident yeah. in France, I believe. And it just started off almost like a movie. I was so enthralled with this book. Well, I chose that case to start with. For that reason. Editors at Quintessent, when I sent that manuscript in, the first thing they said was the first chapter is incredible. The fact that all of our books, the author starts off with their best stuff, and it's about them. Mm-hmm. And he said, and you really read, like, how you were having to think. And it was, you weren't sure. It was honest, yeah. Yeah. And they loved that. It was very real. Yeah. Very often, as orthodox, we're really guilty mm-hmm. of, oh, that's a, you know, whatever the latest hot thing is. Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking through, what are my objectives of treatment? Sonny Long has been to every one of my courses. Sure, yeah. Has been a big influence on me also. But he uh, said, you know, you're really talking about goal-oriented treatment planning. No longer are we just focusing on the problems. Mm-hmm. We're delineating what are your goals in treatment, too. And most of those goals are going to be aesthetic. So that's kind of where the eye came from is that he felt like it would read better, it would be more honest and yeah. So I went with it. Which is fantastic for the book. I know you don't think like this, but as I get into my 40s and practicing, I realize there is no great orthodontist out there without a great team, staff, whatever term you want to use, <laughs> right. right? Depending Behind on where them. you are. Yeah. And, and I think you've been blessed with some super committed staff, as you use the term, or team, however. Yeah. And in fact, you have, I believe, five or six. Six. Ladies that have been with you for 25 plus years, yes. how do they stand you for that long? 
<laughs> well, that's why I have the reward system in place. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you can stand me for 10 years, you get a strand of pearls. <laughs> if you can stand me for 20 years, you get your birthstone bounded to however I want to. Uh-huh. And then when it got to 25 years, I was going, God, I can't believe anybody even hung around that long. I didn't, you know, I'm like most people when I first got out of school, I was going, I'm not going to practice more than 25 years, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm at 40. Yeah. Okay. And I was going, well, 25 years, I'll be pretty much done. You know, because you're stupid and you're young and you don't really know how engrossed you're going to become. Sure. In your specialty. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so then I had a, 25 years, I had to give them a diamond. And then when they started hitting 30 years, they get a trip. First one went to New York, next one went to Halifax. The places they'd always wanted to go. Yeah. Then that was their 30 year thing. Yeah. And as we had discussed earlier, you know, I've had one of 33 years and one of 25 years retire. She got her diamond and she retired. Oh. Yeah. But I think my wife, when she worked for IBM, they had recognition milestones. And I think that's important that people realize that they're not just working for the paycheck. And when you think about it, they're the ones who establish the relationships. They really do. Yeah. For example, Rebecca, who just retired at 33 years, was a receptionist. She knew every kid. She lives in Vestavia. She raised her children in Vestavia. Mm-hmm. Same with Cynthia, who was the other receptionist. Yeah. So they knew everybody. Right. Let's mention all their names on the podcast because they've been such a big part of your practice. I, I know many of them. Well, uh, let's start with Tricia, who yep. started with me when she was 19. She's still there. Your 30, surgical coordinator. Yeah, 37 yep. years. And then next up is Lainey, who was one of my first patients. She's my business manager. Yep. She's at 33 to 34 years. Let me say it goes down. Then Rebecca was 33. Right. Then Cynthia, Cynthia was 25. And uh, E1 is 25. Yeah. Erica. Yeah. Yep. Erica. So this reminds me of the first time Dovey Prayer heard you speak. I heard you mention this in an interview, is that he specifically remembers you saying, higher hearts, not hands. Yes. And I've been fortunate to get people who are really big-hearted people. I mean, they take wonderful care in their job and in patients, and patients can feel that, mm-hmm. and that's important. And, and we all say our practices are like family. Right. It really, truly is. And they got big hearts that'll stay till 7 if they have to. No complaining. Am I getting overtime? Yeah, they don't ask that because they don't really care. They understand we're here to take care of patients. You know, we do what we have to do. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I've ever made them stay till 7 o'clock, but, you know. Well, thank uh, goodness. Certainly, you know, say 5.15 or 5.30. Yeah. It's funny, in orthodontic practice, and you probably noticed this, mm-hmm. that you'll be looking up at the board and you're going, there's no way we're going to get finished at 5. Right. And then at 5, the air is sucked out of the building. <laughs> It's yeah. amazing how that it's happens, It's amazing right? how they can just yeah. fly through stuff. Like, or right before lunch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no options. Amazing things happen. Yeah. yeah. So circling back to the book, I believe this is the first time you published with Quintessence, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So tell us about that. Well, I'm a photographer, and I had just sort of noticed that their handled imagery was really very nice. You know, several cosmetic dental books that they have done. Mm-hmm were just really good and I try really hard to take good photographs Mm -hmm. when I talk to quintessence you know they've said we've been waiting 10 years yeah what people really care to know I chose them for how they handled the imagery and were 
really open to artistic ideas. Things like each chapter has a different color paint swoosh with the designation. Yeah, I love how it's laid out and, you know, you have all this watercolor imagery, which is really in fashion right now from what people (laughs) tell me. I don't know. It's got that artistic element which people associate with you. Right. And I think it uh, sort of speaks to the specialty that what makes beauty and handsome, it's highly variable. There's not a standard, really, Right. to me. The books have standards, but how many people do you know that they have asymmetry or they have and then of course people's personality really influences how you see them physically mm-hmm. and so there's so many things that come into what makes a good appearance and that's part of that whole snap thing the, sure. the p is for presentation presentation is how does that person when i'm finished present mm-hmm. when they walk in a room you know it's quite a presentation when they come in the room yeah. and smile so do you think of yourself as more of a science-based person or an artist? Oh, I'd like to think both. Mm-hmm. The art part is hard to measure. Of course. How do I measure smile projection? Somebody's going to start putting self-metric numbers on it. In the case I told you about, they're not going to like the fact that I proclaimed the lower incisors. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I know the quote that I've heard is the most stable thing you see is the new patient. <laughs> and that might have been mine, actually, because I was doing a chapter on, in Graber's book about arch form, and I researched all the literature on stability and arch form and all that, and I arrived at the conclusion that the most stable thing we treat is the new patient. And anything you alter is unstable. Mm-hmm. Fact is, if you study the science of it, nothing's stable. It's true. Doesn't matter whether you treat them or not, mm-hmm. nothing's stable. And that's just part of the uh, thing that we've, as a profession, sort of made a mistake in, you know, sort of blaming each other for something not being stable. Right. Well, he didn't treat you correctly. And, you know, how many patients have you had come in as a new patient? Yeah, my doctor did this, and, I mean, look at my teeth now. Well, is that really our responsibility? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the battle over fixed retainers or not. And some people, you know, feel strong. Where does the onus go, right? Right. Personally, I use a lot of permanent retainers. Do you? <laughs> On lower incisors, yeah. Yeah. What do you hope your legacy will be? Well, you know, I generally like to tell people, first of all, I'm not finished yet. Okay, so <laughs> I don't still think, going. Well, I get, I get that question quite a bit about, you know, my legacy, my legacy. Uh-huh. And I really can't get a grip on it because I'm not a person who looks backwards very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to look forward. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't really thought about legacy very much because I'm not quite sure if, I mean, nobody's given me a good answer. I've asked people, they say, oh, what your legacy? And I go, what is my legacy? And I've never gotten a good answer. People go, well. Is that right? Yeah. I have not gotten a defined answer. I think it's like a lot of people know your name. Okay. No, I, you know, to me, your legacy is certainly, I've always associated you with Smile Arc, whether, you know, there, there are other contributors to that, but the soft tissue paradigm and, and just changing the way we think about orthodontics in terms of it's okay to think about aesthetics. Yeah. I, I think that's a reasonable thing to say. I think there are so many elements of started out being the surgery guy and right. then uh, became the Smile Arc guy and then I became the laser guy. 
and then I became the, you know, just all these things. And as a person who presents things, you know, you have to bust out of, everybody puts you in a box, like, we want you to lecture on lasers. Right. I don't want to. You know, to me, lecturing about a laser, you know, I might as well lecture about a perio probe. You know, that's a 10-minute discussion for me. Mm-hmm. I can show you lots of cases. Right. But as far as wanting to talk about it, no, I want to move on. Mm-hmm. So, David, looking back on your incredible career, what, if anything, would you have done differently? I think like any person, I'll reflect on good decisions, bad decisions, and and that sort of thing. And try and put them in a context, because certainly we all make bad ones and good ones. Mm -hmm. One of the ones that I always worried about was, I was so focused on career, was did I cheat my children out of time and attention and that sort of thing? And, you know, I'm pretty sure I didn't, but I can't be sure. And I worry about that. Yeah. Uh, but my children are in their 30s, you know. And so I asked my son, who is quite a successful international radiologist and is really an independent thinker, which is pretty much the way my wife and I raised our children, was to not be dependent on us for anything, to be independent. Well, anyway, I asked him one day, I said, Dave, you know, I spent a lot of time on other things. You know, was I a good dad? You know, because I wasn't the dad that could be there at every practice and be the coach. And no orthodox can be the coach. Cause That's right. You're working. Yeah. And I said, was I a good dad? And he thought about it a minute. And he goes, I guess so, Dad, but you were the only one I had. <laughs> <laughs> By default. Yeah. So I was off the hook. But you mentioned that in your acknowledgement of your book, right? I forget the exact phrase you used, but... To Dave, Lee, and Suzanne, who yeah. turned out to be fine, fine people. people, in spite of their father being gone most of the time. Yeah, yeah. you know that's more of a testament to my wife. Mm-hmm. She retired from IBM at 23 years. She wanted to go 25, but you know I was the one that said, "I think it's probably time for you to retire." And she said, "Why would I retire?" And I said, "You know, our son is 14." And she goes, "Yeah, I'd like to go 25." I said, "That's two years. He's 14. You know what happens at 16?" And she goes. You're right. He's gone. Yeah. And so she wanted to be around those last two years mm-hmm. that he's not mobile. Yeah. Much to her credit. When she retired, she retired. Hmm. I mean, right now, she hates technology. Really? I had to buy her an iPhone. She loved her Razor. <laughs> well, her I, flip phone I have to ask this, is that you seem like such a creative, artistic guy, and you always make it a point, I'm not a Mac guy. Right. Is this because of Big Blue and, and your wife working for IBM for no, so long? No, and actually, I, I say that because actually I was a Mac guy. Oh, when? Early in my career. No way. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Kind of drove all that was when I started developing software with OrthoTrack. Hmm. It had to be in Windows because that's the business. You know, Macs are they're maybe more adaptable to business now, but they're but not. But they weren't back then. Yeah. Right. But even today, they're not known as a business right. computer. And so I had to become a switch hitter. I had both. Mm-hmm. And then I finally moved completely over. I think the reason I say I'm not a Mac guy is how Mac people are almost like arrogant about being Mac people. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. Like, I can't believe you don't use a Mac. <laughs> I said it's a computer. Yeah. You know, it's a box. That ties in with, like, start with why, right? And Simon Sinek, which you love that, but it's just, you know, the... Apple marketing message never started with, hey, it's a computer, it's a box, right? right? Oh, their marketing is uh, unparalleled. Right. Yeah. So it became an ethos. Yes. Yeah. 
well, I mean, uh, think differently. Right. Yeah, I'd totally buy into that. It's just that I'm... You're smart enough not to just go buy I use a Samsung phone instead of an mm-hmm. iPhone. Why? Right. I don't like getting forced into the phone. I can yeah. take that phone and hook it up to my computer, mm-hmm. and it's an external hard drive. And I can treat it as such. There you go. Whereas music, pictures, I've got to go iTunes, iWhatever, I don't know. I think everything's iSomething. iWhatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't like getting told where I'm going to put things. And you being a photographer, you understand, I mean, Samsung was a camera company first, and so the iPhone's been trying to catch up to their cameras all the way along. I think iPhone's winning at this point, though. No? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't compared. I haven't compared. <laughs> so let's end on this final question. David, what do you think the future of orthodontics will look like? Wow. That one is a good one. The demographics, as you know, are changing quite a bit. Probably the biggest one is debt, as you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. But the other one, of course, is gender. Well, I had two females in my dental school class. Only two? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and you graduated in 1977. Okay. And so one went on to build an enormous practice in Huntsville, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And then the other ended up being dean of the dental school. Wow. And she and I were real good friends in school. And I asked her, what, you know, how did we handle you in dental school? I don't recall us worrying about you were a, a, a girl or anything like that. And she said, well, you didn't. She said, but that's what I liked is I did not want to be treated any differently than anybody else. And I think it was really good for me because y'all kicked me around just as much as you did each other. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of toughened me up to be be a dean. I get it. You yeah. know. So you got the debt. You got the demographics. You got the numbers. We graduate over 400 a year now, whereas it used to be slightly above about 230 mm-hmm. every year. And so we've got a lot of things that are changing and I can't tell you exactly what the end point's going to be. I know that the tendency to think is there's going to be the boutique private practice, and I just don't think the boutique private practice, I don't think the very successful individual practice is going to go away because you build on that success. But the other side of the coin is that there are adaptations to the current model that we have to accommodate like kids finishing with a half a million or more in debt, mm-hmm. where do they go? Where do they go? They've got to have a place to go. So can you build something that actually has similar incentives that I had? I knew the more I worked, the more creative I was, the nicer I was to people, the better I would do financially. And so that's a big in- incentive for the corpse, for private practice, for whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think the future really is... A lot of things. I would probably say that I think that most of it's very good because I think we've got the core of orthodontists are really on firm ground in terms of ethics and so forth. You know, you've got your outliers, but by and large, most orthodontists are ethical and moral and thinking kind of people. And so we're all all lucky in that regard. But um, we'll see. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you like the show, please take a second to click subscribe. Also, I'd really appreciate if you could share this show with your friends. Until next time, this is Chris Setta, signing off.